The sermon text for today is from Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. She's on page 568 in the Paperback Bibles. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Amen. The Lord be Lord. This year was the first year that I did not march in the Wake Up the Earth Parade. The first year since 2012. Um, I think a few of you made it. I was not able to go. Um, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, the Wake Up the Earth Parade, it's a festival that gets held every year in this neighborhood uh, in Jamaica Plain and Roxbury that commemorates and celebrates our unity. It actually is looking back to activism that happened in the early 1970s when the state of Massachusetts came up with a plan to run Highway 95 right through the middle of Jamaica Plain, Roxbury, right through the middle of the city of Boston. And around that time, when this plan came out, uh, people started to organize. They started to protest. Uh, hundreds of people showed up to community meetings to say, we don't want this to happen. We, we rallied together across our, our different uh, lines of, of uh, across the things that separated us, and we said, no, we don't want this to happen. And at the last moment, the governor, he vetoed the plan, even though uh, the ground had already been prepared for construction. And every year, since then, we have a big party to celebrate. We celebrate this, this big moment of our unity by having a parade and a festival, the Wake Up the Earth Festival. We have a group that starts in JP on Center Street by the Monument, and we have another group that starts in Eggleston Square, and we march in this colorful parade down to Jackson Square, we meet together, and then we triumphantly march into the Southwest Corridor Park. And that park is named after what would have been the Southwest Corridor of the highway. And I really like the, the thing, it's, it's a really fun day, I enjoy it, but I also leave that meeting I leave that celebration with a, a tinge of uh, sadness because I recognize that as we leave that party, people go back to their side of the neighborhood, others go back to the other side of the neighborhood, and that's about it for our relationship for the rest of the year. In some senses, the, a lot of the families that live on the, the pond side of JP might as well live on another planet from the people who live in Eggleston Square. Um, the unity that we celebrate, the unity that we proclaim is, is really only in name. We don't share lives with one another. We don't share each other's burdens. And that makes me sad. But as a pastor, when I see that, I don't despair. Instead, it, it reminds me that the unity that we're all wanting to celebrate, the unity that we're all looking for can be found on earth. The unity that we need, it actually does exist, but it doesn't exist in a parade. It exists in the church. And that's what Paul wants to tell us this morning as we look at the book of Ephesians. That, in fact, is the message of the entire book of Ephesians. 
It is about the unity of the church. And today, as we look at verses 3 through 6, that message comes into a razor-sharp focus. And so today, I want us to look at these verses, and I want us to see what Paul is telling us about the church. Three simple things. He tells us that the church is unified, that our unity is difficult to maintain, and that hope motivates our unity. Our unit, our, our, the church is unified, our unity is difficult to maintain, but the church uh, is motivated by hope as we pursue that unity. So let's look at those things right now. The church is unified. In verse 3, Paul says that we have the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. That means we have a unity that originates first from the Spirit of God. We have a unity that originates from God himself. It is not a man-made unity. Now, we see man-made unity in all kinds of places. I think a a good example of a man-made unity is our political parties, that we choose to affiliate ourselves with the Democrats or with the Republicans based on conclusions that we've come to. We make a choice to affiliate ourselves with that group of people, and maybe over the course of our lives, we might change our minds about that. We might switch from one party to the next. But we're we're affiliating ourselves with these people who have some sense of we belong together. The unity of the church is not like that. The unity of the church doesn't originate in our choices. Not our plans. But God's plans. In chapter 2... You remember, he says how it works. Paul tells us how this unity happens. He says that the story for all of us is that we we start out dead in our sin. We are dead in our sin. We're far from God. We're not looking for God at all. We, in fact, are, are actively living lives apart from God. We're living as his enemies. And then his spirit comes and it snatches us up. It makes us alive again. It shows us how our sin is so profound that it has removed us from the presence of God. And his spirit gives us a desire to believe. To believe that only the sacrifice of Jesus, only the perfect life of Jesus given in our place is enough to pay for our sins and unite us to God. So when that happens... When that narrative enters your life, it's God's action. God's action is what makes us a part of God's people forever. And so that means our unity here, the unity of the church, it is a unity that is entirely different from any other kind of earthly institution. It's different from any political party. It is the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit, a unity that is established, that is built and that originates with God. And then as Paul goes on, he explains that our unity, it's it's greater than that even. It's greater not only because it starts with God, but because it is forever rooted in God. So our unity starts with God, but it is forever rooted in God. You know, over time, in those political parties, right, you can see, if you, if you joined one and just stuck with it forever, 
if you, if you had the advantage of living hundreds of years, you would notice that political parties, they change. Their, their ideologies, their values, the culture of those parties change. So the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln was very different from the Republican Party of Ronald Reagan, which is very different from the Republican Party of Donald Trump. But the church has a foundation that never changes. The church has a leadership that doesn't shift. Here's what uh, Paul says is our foundation. He says that there is one body and one spirit. In verse 5 he says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, I'm sure you heard that, right? The word that kept coming up over and over again? One, right? One. In our passage, he says the word one seven different times. And his point's pretty simple. The church is one. It is one because it is forever rooted in this eternal, unchangeable, one God for all time. When Paul says one Lord... It's important to note that his point is, is not that we only have one God, like that we're a monotheistic religion. Paul's not pointing out that, that Christians are monotheists just like Islam would be or Mormonism would be, but he's actually saying what the church has always said, what God's people have always proclaimed. It's what Jennifer read for us a few minutes ago in, in the Old Testament reading, Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, open up to it real quick. It's page 87. Um, I'll go there too. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This uh, verse is called the Shema. It's a very important proclamation, a very important declaration for the people of God. And one thing I want you to notice, if you've got your Bibles there, look at the word LORD, and you'll see that it's in all caps. The rest of the words are, are normal. The word LORD is all caps. That's the way the English translation is telling you that's the proper name of God that you're looking at. It says Yahweh is one. Yahweh is one. In other words, this, this verse is saying that Yahweh is LORD and there is no other. It's not just that we have one God, but it's that Yahweh is the only God. There is only one church because there is only one God. And in our passage in Ephesians, Paul tells us that this God has shown himself as a triune God. One Spirit, one Lord, one Father of all. One God in three persons. That's the God that we serve. The historical way to put that was in the Athanasian Creed. If you ever want to learn about the Trinity and how, how best we can explain how it works, go back and read that creed. But, but in the beginning of it, it says, we worship one God in Trinity. And Trinity in unity. Neither confounding persons nor dividing the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one. The glory equal. The majesty co-eternal. 
In other words, what, what that creed is telling us is that God is even unified in himself. That he cannot be divided. And that his people, his church, reflect that unity. Paul also says there's only one faith. And there's only one baptism. In Acts chapter 4, Peter's preaching and he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven among by which men must be saved. He says there's only one salvation. That means in the church, there's only one category of people. People saved by Jesus. That's it. There is no Savior for the Jews and then another Savior for the Gentiles. There's not one Holy Spirit for men and another Holy Spirit for women. There is not one church for rich people and another church for poor people. Our hope is the same. It's one hope. It means that all the millions of people who all across the the church, across the world, around the globe, from different cultures and races and classes in all time and in all history, they all come into the church by bowing their knees before one, the Lord Jesus Christ. They only come in with the power of one Holy Spirit that unites us. That's our unity. Our unity is not dependent on our choices. It's not dependent on, on what we have Our unity is based not on ever-changing human leaders. Christians are one because God is one. He never changes. And he has made us one by his power, by his action. He has taken us all and he has put us together. That's the point here. That's that's what Paul wants us to see. The church is unified. But the second point we have to understand is that our unity is difficult to maintain. Our unity is difficult to maintain. And this is kind of a paradox, right? Because on one hand, Paul has just told us that we have this unbreakable unity that God has made that has nothing to do with us, that that there's no chance it's going to fail because God is in control. He's at the top. He is the one behind it. Our church's unity is as sure and reliable as God himself. On the other hand, Paul says this, we must be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that word eager is kind of a difficult word to translate into English, honestly. Um, Eager is a pretty good shot. The NIV, it says, make every effort to maintain. But even that, I'm not sure it gets to the point that Paul's trying to make. The the word has this sense of urgency to it. It has a sense of haste to it. Even even a sense of crisis behind it. 
So he's saying while on one hand we have this unshakable unity, on the other hand, we're always in crisis mode. So what kind of sense does that make? What kind of sense does it make that that our unity is unshakable and yet we're always in crisis trying to maintain our unity? Well, unfortunately, if you have been in the church for any amount of time, you know exactly what this means. This makes perfect sense to you if you have been in the church for any any length of time because uh, this is how we are. There's a famous hymn that talks about the unity of the church. It's the church's one foundation, and we haven't sung it in a long time. But there's a, there's a great verse in that hymn that talks about our unity. It uses a lot of these same words right out of this verse. That God has set us on these same one foundations. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, all that stuff. And then the verse that follows, it says... Though with scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Basically, in the song we sing that even though God has made us one, we are still sinners with all kinds of conflict, and we still have an enemy. Satan, who wants to do everything he can to break that unity apart. And so, we have heresies that rise up in the church and they pull us away from those foundational doctrines that we rest on. We have fights amongst ourselves. And sometimes those fights become church splits. And maybe some of you, I'm talking about that and And you know this story already. Maybe you know this all too well. Maybe you've been in a church that has split apart. Maybe you've been at a church where you have suffered as a leader started teaching unbiblical doctrine. Or maybe you've been on the interpersonal side of that. Maybe you're in conflict right now, this very moment, with someone in this room. Maybe all those things, maybe all those hurts has made you angry. And when you hear that hymn say that the people cry out, how long? You feel that, because that's you. You know that. How long is this going to happen? Well, if if so, if that's the place you find yourself this morning, I want to encourage you and say that God also hates division amongst His people. That's why there's such urgency here. It's more than just being eager. Paul is saying, do everything that you possibly can right now at this moment to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, do everything you possibly can to bind yourselves together with peace. So the way we do that, the way we maintain this unity, The way we work on it is through peacemaking. It's through each one of us living out that reality that we were sinners. Each and every one of us. If you are a believer in this church, you were a sinner who deserved death. But instead, Christ gave himself for you. 
so that you could have peace with God. And so that we could have peace with each other. That's your story. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about what our lives are supposed to be like, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Because we have received great peace, we are supposed to then go and be zealous for peace. We should be anxious for peace. We should view our lack of peace with each other as a desperate crisis that we need to deal with immediately. We need to view the lack of peace as a threat to the church and a threat to its witness in the world. We need to be peacemakers. But being peacemakers is different than you might think. I want to spell that out really clearly. Being a peacemaker, first of all, it does not mean that you are a a peacekeeper. Peacekeeping, what I mean by that is, is when you do everything you can just to avoid conflict. Right? When you do everything you can to keep things cool and level. There might be problems, but, but what you think that, that the answer to them is just not to address them. So rather than confronting people on their sin, rather than talking to someone about the way they have broken relationship with you, or how they have strayed from obedience to God, you just try to make things livable. You look the other way. You ignore it. You exist in that lie that, well, things will just blow over eventually. They'll take care of themselves. But when you do that, it's like trying to put a a cork in a geyser or something. (laughs) You might plug it up. Things might look calm for a moment, but eventually that thing is going to explode and it's going to be way more powerful than it was in the first place. There is a tension building beneath the surface when we avoid conflict that's eventually going to make everything worse. I think some of you know what I mean. I think you've lived that story before. Peacemaking is not peacekeeping. On the other hand, peacemaking is also not conflict eradicating. Sometimes we can go the other direction, you know. We can get into this trap of saying that the problem here is that we have a bad person that needs to get dealt with, and once we get rid of them, the problem is solved. And that's where the church splits come in. Or maybe, personally, that's when we get up and we leave the church. We think that that if we can just get that person out of here, or if I can just get out of here, then the problem's going to go away. But that's a lie. If you've ever known anybody who's been through a divorce for irreconcilable differences, there's always these moments in the months leading up to it where where people contemplate it and they say, My, you know, if, I could just, if we could just be apart, then our problems would be solved. There's this vision of a, a post-divorce utopia that this thing is going to make me happy. But if you've ever known someone who is divorced or who has recently been divorced, you, you know that it doesn't solve anything. Maybe that one problem goes away, but there's a whole new set of problems that they have to deal with. The kind of peacemaking God calls us to in the church is not to divorce ourselves from the people we're at odds with. 
The peacemaking God calls us to is harder than than peacekeeping, and it's harder than conflict eradicating. The, The peacemaking he calls us to is this. Honest, mutual examination and ownership of our sin. It's boldness to confront a brother or a sister when they have hurt you or when they have slipped into error. You know what? What it really is? It is a passion for God's honor more than your own comfort. It requires that that we love people enough to have hard conversations with them and that, that we are committed enough to keep working on it even when the resolution isn't easy. Even when it doesn't come quick. Even when, like we talked about last week, it might take a lifetime for us to get there together. But Paul says that we, the people of God, should be eager to do this. We should be zealous for those kinds of relationships. We should want it the same way we want water when somebody, we want this. (laughs) That's not right. What I meant to say (laughs) was that we should want it the same way that we want air when someone's holding our heads underwater. That we should struggle for it. (laughs) I know now it's the total opposite. But if I had said it right, wouldn't that have been good? Um, Anyway. We should want to do whatever we can to fight for unity. We should be in crisis when we don't have unity. We can never give up on it. Not for one moment. Because God has given us this great gift. God has given us this unity. It comes from Him. It belongs to Him. It is guaranteed from Him. And yet, it is difficult to maintain. So the third thing that I want to mention is that hope is what's going to motivate us to do this. Okay, what do you hope for? Let me ask you that question. What are you hoping for? You know, I'm hoping that this upcoming week I will work less. That's what I'm hoping for. I talked to Ruby, and she told me that the kids at the Nathan Hale School are hoping that there will be spaghetti and meatballs on the menu and not the gross veggie pizza on the menu this week. (laughs) Maybe you're uh, hoping for a better paying job. Or maybe you're just hoping that it's going to be sunny tomorrow. All those kinds of hopes are good hopes, but they are uncertain hopes. They're things that you're not sure whether they're going to happen or not. But that is very different from what Paul means when he uses the word hope. In the middle of our passage today, right after he says we have one body and one spirit, he breaks and he says, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That hope, that hope that he's talking about, the hope that we have in Christ isn't in doubt. It's not like the lunch menu. This is a sure hope that he's talking about. It is a hope that is guaranteed. It is a hope that you can rest upon. It's the hope of Ephesians 
chapter 1, where he says that, that God has revealed his plan that in the fullness of time, he's going to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. It's this hope that even though we're dealing with sin right now, even though we have lots of conflict right now, even though this is hard right now, even though we feel stuck sometimes, God has already shown us what's coming. God has already promised what's out there, what lies ahead. See, only a people with a sure hope can be faithful in the midst of hardship. Only when you have a sure hope are you going to be able to follow God faithfully when conflict comes up. The Spirit of the living God. He promises that when He begins a work in someone, He brings it to completion. And only when you believe that, only when you realize that the person in this body who you are in conflict with, God has promised that for them as well. That person is headed to glory right alongside of you. That He, God, He is equally committed to both of you, to making you, to the people that He's created you to be. Only when you have a sure hope that He will do that work, that He won't leave you behind, only then will you be able to be faithful when things get hard. So how do you get that hope? How does this hope that Paul talks about, how does that become your hope today? How do we find the strength to give people peace, to give people grace, to not only want it as an ideal, but to actively do the hard work today to seek it with someone? Well, you're going to get that from Jesus. You see, the only way we're going to labor for peace is if we are constantly receiving peace. The only way we're going to work for peace with each other is if we are constantly receiving peace from our Lord and Savior. That's the good news, folks. The good news that we believe is that Jesus came for a people who were warring against him, who were living apart from him, who were raging against God, who were destined for destruction. And instead of coming in wrath, Jesus came and he gave his life for them, for us. That's what Christ did on the cross. He gave us peace with God by paying for our sin. And do you know, we say that all the time. I hope we say that every time you come here. I hope that's not news to you. But do you know that when Jesus pays for your sins, he really pays for them? He pays for all of your sins. When you turn to him, when you confess your sins... Scripture tells us that He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And not just the old ones. <laughs> not just the ones that you, you committed a long time ago before you became a Christian. But actually, what the Gospel tells us is that every day 
You offend God with your sin. And every day, Jesus is there to offer peace. The book of Hebrews, it says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So let us then draw with confidence, let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What I'm saying here is that to give people grace and peace, you need to be receiving daily from the throne of grace and peace. Amen? Amen. To forgive sins. If we're going to forgive sins against us, we need to see our own sins and receive forgiveness. If we're going to forgive other people, we need to be looking at ourselves and constantly receiving that repentance, constantly repenting before the Lord and receiving grace and mercy from Him. When I meet people in the church who cannot forgive each other, that's the first thing I wonder about. I wonder, do you know how much you are forgiven by God every day? Do you know that He has given you a sure hope every day when you are unreliable, when you are unfaithful? Our hope, it has to come from the Lord. If we want to be peacemakers, we cannot do it unless we are getting peace from God. We have to receive that. We have to receive His grace if we want to give it to anybody else. And here's the very last thing I'm going to say, I promise. I know that that sure hope that I talked about seems really abstract. Everybody together, united in Christ. I know that that seems, when you hear it, like it's a million miles away. Like it's hundreds of centuries into the future. Something that you, you just can't feel. But the promise that, that, that Paul is offering us here is that there is a foretaste of it right now. That right now, right here at this table, we can come and experience that today. In this moment, not at the, the wake of the earth parade or anything else, but right now, at this moment, when we come to this one table with this one loaf, we are what one author he said, a society of pardoned rebels, a, a multiracial community in which Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in unity, in one body. And so I want to invite you to come here today and participate in it to experience this reality that can only be found in this one place in this whole world. This one moment where we come here with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father who is over all and in all. And I want to say to you, if, if you don't know any of this stuff, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you are not a part of the church, if, if you have never received grace from God before, I want to invite you right now is the time to come and cry out. 
Right now is the time for you to say, Lord Jesus, unite me to yourself. Unite me to your people. And I also want to just very practically challenge you guys again. If you are not living this out, go and be reconciled right now. If the problem is too big that you can't possibly fix it in the next 30 seconds by a few kind words, what I want to say is at least acknowledge that and say, I'm going to work with you. Be desperate. And then, let's come here and celebrate. Let's come here and celebrate with one love and one God and one body the fact that we have a unity that can never be broken. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I'm grateful for your word. And I'm grateful that, that you can speak when sometimes I can't get words out. Lord, today is Pentecost, and we ask that your spirit would come. We ask, Lord, that you would do what we can't do, that that you would motivate our hearts in ways we can't motivate ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would give us the gift of urgency, that you would give, give us the gift of boldness, Lord, that we would no longer wait to seek reconciliation with one another. And Lord, we pray for your church at large as we approach the world. Lord, we know that we're responsible to share your gospel with everyone else. Lord, would you allow this place to show that unity, Lord, and would you send us out to draw other people into it? Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.